Would you please turn with me to Luke chapter 19? Luke chapter 19. I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. It's trustworthy and true. God's word is without error. verse 11 of chapter 19. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called 10 of his slaves and gave them 10 minas. And said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him as that he might so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared saying, master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came saying, your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him, also, and you are to be over five cities. Another came saying, master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and repeating what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we pray that you would grant us understanding in your word, and we ask this, that it might be to our own edification and further to the glory of our Savior. And we ask this in his name. Amen. At the beginning of this verse 11 in my Bible, it says in, in a heading, which is not inspired, but is added by those who translate and write scripture for us, a parable of money usage. Now, it, it, to a degree, it is, about, it is about money usage, but that is not the thrust of this passage. There is a connection for us, all of us, between all that we have... Uh, well, it's a connection that we've all made. It's a connection that whether we are conscious of it or not, it's there and it motivates all that we do. It's a calculation of the time that we have remaining in which to live. And, and we calculate what to do with that time. We have, we have a certain understanding of Christ's return. We believe it to be far off, at least far off enough that it won't come 
Now, Christ won't come until either we die or we have accomplished everything we intend to accomplish. We often do not live in light of eternity in a spirit of expectation. And our views concerning eschatology and the kingdom of God, things that are, are, are quite large in, 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 their, in their breadth and, and in, their, uh, in, their, in, 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 the, in, in the themes that, that are held out in eschatology, which, which simply refers to the return of Jesus Christ and, and the end times, the events of the end times, we often will put them away and leave them as future calculations. They do not weigh in upon our present day calculations as to how we ought to live. We all do it to some degree. Some of us more, more so than others. But we, we, we live, we move, and we don't think, oftentimes, nor do we live in light of the return of Jesus Christ. Well, this passage is very much about that subject, and it is very much about how we ought to live. There is a key sentence in this passage. I love when uh, the Bible gives us in a particular passage a a key to our understanding of the text that follows. And certainly in verse 11, we are given that. They were listening to these things. Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Amongst his disciples... There was an assumption of an immediate inauguration or, or a physical temporal kingdom that would immediately come into bear and be made manifest when Jesus entered Jerusalem. They believed that he was going to arrive, that he was going to ascend ultimately the Temple Mount. He was going to enter into the very presence of God and eventually he would be seated upon the throne of David. Roman rule would be broken through warfare and hostility. The Davidic king would be installed once again and declared to be the, the kingdom of God. But, but Jesus is making clear to his followers, this is not the moment. This is not the moment. The kingdom has already been inaugurated. We've already delved into the idea of the kingdom of God in earlier chapters of this passage. Jesus has said repeatedly, the kingdom is ever before you. The kingdom of God has come. It was proclaimed by John. It was proclaimed by Jesus. The king is walking amongst his people. He is doing the work of the kingdom. The kingdom has come, but it has not been finally consummated in that wondrous, glorious day when Jesus will come in the clouds together with all those who have died in Him and He will descend and we will ascend and we will be together with Him in the air and then the new heavens and the new earth after the destruction of the old earth and the old kingdom will will, will burn away and the judgment of God will come and uh, Christ will be seated on the throne and all will stand before Him in judgment. That day is coming, but it is not yet. It is not yet come. And yet, Jesus Christ is king. He's king over all the earth. He is the sovereign God. Into his hands has been given the kingdom and the keys of the kingdom of God. Jesus himself declared, I have the keys to the kingdom of God. I have the keys of life and of death. 
We know the Father's good pleasure in the Son, and we know that all things have been given to Him, and that all authority resides in Him. He is the Lord. And as He enters into Jerusalem, or is about to enter into Jerusalem from Jericho, He will have His disciples to know what to expect and how to live. This parable is a clarification of timeliness. It's an adjustment to the expectation of his followers and disciples and how to conduct themselves, how to live while waiting for the consummation of the kingdom and and ultimately the return of the king. Now, in this story, there is an individual who is a, a ruler and he is to depart to a faraway country in order to receive the kingdom. That kingdom is not something that's far away that he's going to get. It is the present location from where he starts out. He is, a, he is a ruler there. He is being given this place where he rules as a kingdom. So he is going to be inaugurated as a king. He is going to be declared to be, rightfully declared to be, the king. And something happens along the way. <clears throat> There's a nobleman, and he has to go to a distant country. It seems that he is a vassal ruler in some way under a greater, a greater ruler. And so what, what, uh, what will happen is that he is to be recognized as the king of this particular place in which he resides and where his servants serve him and where these people who will complain in a moment uh, reside. He is to go away and to receive that kingdom, to be called the king. He is to be recognized as the king over this particular territory, this country, this particular place of his influence. Now there are some who are citizens and they send a, 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 uh, they send a group after him and they make it clear that they do not support his rule. It's in, found in verse 14, but his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, this is a very similar situation to one with which the, uh, the audience of Jesus this day would know. Uh, their ruler, their previous ruler, Archelaus, uh, Herod Archelaus, He himself had gone through this period of time. He was a regional ruler and his father had died. Herod the Great had died in 4 BC. And when he died, he had rewritten his will 10 days before, just 10 days before his death. He had an older will that made um, Antipas, the younger brother, uh, king over Judea and the surrounding region. However, ten days before his death, he rewrote his will, making Antipas, his, uh, the, the eldest brother, or Archelaus, pardon me, Archelaus, uh, now he was making him king. And of course, there was a complication in the fact that Romans occupied Judea, and they could only serve as king, Antipas or Archelaus, or Herod the Great, with the permission of their Roman occupiers. So, Out of this confusion, Archelaus decided he would go to Rome and be recognized by Caesar Augustus. And so he went to Rome. 
Uh, unbeknownst to him, family members of his own came also. His half-brother Philip, Antipas, his younger brother, they all went and they pleaded their cases and they showed their wills that they had been given, showing that they had a right to this. Eventually, Archelaus falls on his face before Caesar Augustus and pleads, and he is given, uh, he is given not the kingship, but the land is divided and he is made a... Uh, he has made a lesser ruler with the idea that he may probationarily be acknowledged as king at a later point. But there were additional people there too. There were 50 members of the Judean committee, community that also accompanied uh, Archelaus to Rome. And they pleaded with Caesar Augustus to not permit him to be their ruler. An event had happened recently, and that uh, not 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 so long ago, prior to that, or just after the four uh, B.C. death of his father, uh, he had sent the army into Jerusalem, and they had killed uh, some three thousand Jewish persons who had who were worshiping in the temple. <clears throat> well, after Archelaus returned with the tetrarch ship uh, from Caesar Augustus. Uh, he had all of his enemies put to death uh, even further. He was a despotic man. He was a wicked man. And all those who lived around Jerusalem would remember Archelaus and Antipas and Philip. And they would acknowledge that Caesar Augustus was the, the, the leader of the free world, as it were. And he was, in fact, their overarching ruler. And they would know what it was for their ruler to go away to a far country to receive the kingdom. And what it means for a retinue of his citizens to follow and say, we hate this man. And so Jesus is likening his situation as he enters into Jerusalem to that of this man, this nobleman, who went away to a far land to receive the kingdom. <clears throat> now, the sum of all of this is that Jesus is talking about believers. He's talking about his followers and how they should live as they await his second coming. A simple outline of the verses is found in verse 11. The purpose of this parable is given. Verses 12 through 14, the nobleman prepares his kingdom and his servants for his physical absence. And, and then in verses 15 through 21, the nobleman returns. He is the king and he receives an update from his servants. And in verses 22 through 27, there is condemnation both for this unrighteous steward, this this servant uh, who has not served his Lord's best interests, one who has done wickedly, and further, there is condemnation for those citizens who have refused his rule now that he is king. These people, these people in, in a mere chapter's time in Scripture, in a matter of a few days, will stand by the roadside as Jesus enters in on that donkey, on that young colt. And they will proclaim as they throw those, those palm branches into the road, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they will proclaim that he is king. And only a few days hence after that, they will stand in the crowds before Pilate, and they will say, crucify him. Crucify him. 
these are the these are the crowds that Jesus will enter into Jerusalem before. They all want a king, but they have an expectation about that king that he will inaugurate the kingdom then. That he will do so militarily, he will remove the bonds of the Romans, and he will sit momentarily upon the throne of David. We see a number of things in this passage. We have seen Christ's rejection. And it's important for us to recognize, and Jesus is pointing out that fact to his disciples. Jesus will be rejected. He is in fact rejected. He is like that nobleman whose citizens come up and say, who will send a delegation, we do not want this man. Thus far, if we have not yet seen it throughout Luke's gospel, there have been many who have rejected Jesus Christ as as the Son of God, as the Savior of mankind, as the Messiah sent to take away the sins of the world. They have rejected and they will continue to reject the Lord Jesus Christ when His disciples will proclaim, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees will say, stop your people from saying this. And Jesus will say, the very rocks of the ground will cry out if they will not say it. Jesus is the Messiah. However much mankind may want to reject him, the reality is he is the eternal Son of God. And he is the Lamb of God whose blood washes us of our sin. He is the one who has come to take away the sins of the world. And yet, how many reject Jesus Christ? It's extraordinary. Here is an offer of free grace. Here is an offer of of forgiveness of sin, pardon of guilt and wickedness, an acceptance as sons in Christ Jesus, an adoption as sons and daughters of the living God, children of God, justification through the instrument of faith. If you believe, you will be justified, your sins taken away and nailed to the cross with Christ. His righteousness imputed to you, such that you are received by God the Father, justified, holy, sanctified in His name. Promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Yesterday I was at a lovely wedding. There were a lot of young people there, young men and women, with young families, little children, It was a joy to be there. We enjoyed ourselves, Christine and myself and our kids, our our daughters. And we enjoyed the day and we enjoyed the food. But I couldn't help but think as I looked around at this, these hundred guests, how many of these people love the Lord? How many are believers? They've heard what I've just said as I officiated and spoke about love and about God's love in Christ. And how many of them believe that? What are they living for? What is their motivation in life? Jesus was rejected. And we ought not to be, ought not be surprised ourselves when we are in fact are rejected or when we share the gospel with someone whom we love. And we, we, we think we've arrived at the moment of decision. They, they've, they've, At this point, we expect that they will say, yes, I I need Christ. 
And yet we're amazed when they they have no interest. Oh, well, that's well and good for you, but I'm not willing to make that sacrifice. I don't believe these things. This isn't true to me. And we're surprised, and sometimes we get angry, and we ask, Lord, why? Why why is it that you have not caused to bear fruit this hour of my life I've just spent with this person? And what we need is a refreshing reminder that it's not all about us. God will glorify himself in the salvation of, of sinful people according to his own will and not ours. Our obligation is to serve the living God. And God will grant his grace as he has willed it to be granted. And God will save those who are his. And our duty is to serve him. To bear fruit for him. Not in the not in our manipulation of people or somehow we can notch our belt that someone has done something or turned to God because of our testimony. No, but but it's found in simply this, that we have served God's interests. That we have done what is pleasing in his sight. That we have borne witness for Christ. And that we are his people. The fruit therein And what God is pleased to do with what we have offered to him is entirely his own. But we can depart happy, thankful, blessed, because we have served the Lord. Rejection. Well, we also see the subject of stewardship in this passage. And I'll I'll tell you, this, this, this is not a passage that should be preached on the subject of stewardship and stewardship season in October, November of the year. It's not about that. It's not ultimately about that, that, that idea. And, and we might, uh, we, we, we've perhaps heard from preachers and pastors who have preached on this section of scripture and maybe they've spoken about stewardship or maybe they've talked about salvation or condemnation according to works that one day there'll be a an appearance of every human being before the throne of god and each of us will receive that which is commensurate to the work that we have done for god that this passage is not about that either or somehow that there will be rewards divvied up in the last day when Everyone gets in and is saved, but some of us will be disappointed for we won't have as much as the other. Well, it's not about that either. We've already read what it's about. It's in verse 11. He was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. It's about an expectation of the appearance of the kingdom of God. It's about living in a prepared sort of way. It's about living in light of the return of our King every single day. It's about making certain that we are stewards of the mysteries of God, that we faithfully carry out what God has given us to do, that we make use of our gifts and serve the Lord faithfully, that we carefully and thoughtfully think about whether or not we are serving the Lord and whether or not we are using our gifts in His service whether or not we are serving one another's interests, and whether or not we are obeying the Word of God. Stewardship. Each of us is a steward. We have not been given minas or minas, however you may want to translate or, or pronounce that word. We haven't been given talents, and yet we have been given abilities. We have been given much. 
we have been given a great deal, and I'll tell you about some of those things in a moment. But I think we need to mark a few things very, very carefully. The king, when we think about the subject of stewardship, the king is the source of their of their resources. They don't come from themselves. These servants are given a mina, which is about three months worth of of an income for a servant like this. It's about three months worth of an income. They're each given a mina. Ten servants are in fact given a mina. We only hear a report from three of them. It's in verse 13. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. His expectation is that while he's gone, his minas will do work. And he has commanded that. Do business with this until I come back. He didn't say, do what seems best to you. Do business with this until I come back. This is his resource. This is what belongs to him. Do business with this until I come back. Make use of it, not for your own gratification, but I'm coming back, and this better have been involved in business. And of course, his own servants know what kind of a person he is. You're an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. That's the expectation behind that statement in verse 13. And so the source of the resources is the king, this nobleman who will become king. What they have and who they are, they belong to him. What they are and who they, what they what they have and who they are is in fact determined by the nobleman himself. Their very identity is bound up in him. What they have and the resources they make use of, the business that they are about, all has to do with what he has given to them. The servants know who their master is. We've We've made that clear in verse 17, or pardon me, verse uh, 20 and 21. The servants know who their master is, and the king ultimately is the one who either condemns or rewards. He has entrusted to them his property, and he has commanded that they do business with this. And later on in the same section, that he will receive back what he owns with an expectation that it is increased. And these individuals, they are bondservants. They exist to serve him. They are in subjection to him. And this makes the non-working servant appear all the more unfaithful. Each servant has received the master's charge. Each is commanded to do business with what they have received. Eventually, he comes back to settle accounts with them. Now, again, I, I ask you, when, when you, when you are in a group of people and you're perhaps at a wedding or a funeral or perhaps you're uh, just simply at a concert or you're in a gathering of other people, do you think about people and what they believe in, what they are hoping in? Do you think about what motivates them? Who are they? What would they in, in what way would they identify themselves What motivates them to live? What are their joys and disappointments? What are they living for? 
Are any of them Christians? Are they living in the hope of the return of Jesus Christ? This third slave denies what he knows about his master. His master has an expectation to receive, to receive an increase based upon what he is given. And he puts it in the ground rather than at least achieving some interest, some growth of what his master has given to him. By his very activity, he denies what he knows about his master. I was afraid of you. If he is afraid, he should make certain that what he does is in fact profitable. You are an exacting man. You take what up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. If, if he knows his master, he would have made certain that he would have an increase. But he does not. He denies what he knows about his master. Note the harshness of the master's judgment. You wicked servant. There is a hurtfulness about his actions. There is a, a rejection of his master and in the truth of what he knows about his master in his slothfulness. This unjust servant, this unrighteous servant, this servant who has been lazy and indolent, fearful to the point of not producing, is an, a worthless servant, an unprofitable servant. He has not served the interests of his master. Do you see that? He has served his own personal interests and he has not served the interests of his master. He has indulged himself in the safety or an expectation of safety with his lack of production. The judgment is that what little has been given to him, he will lose. He will be thrust into outer darkness with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. Everyone who has, more shall be given, and from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. What has been given, what has been received, will be taken away. We, We live in a world in which there have been many instances of pastors, of elders, of leaders in the church who have betrayed the trust that has been given to them and they have sinned against the body of Jesus Christ. What usually happens is these individuals will admit and cry on television and then about a year later after rehabbing, they will then lift themselves up and elevate themselves to the position where that they feel that they can now confess their sins freely and they, that, that God has in some way appeared to them, calling them back into ministry. And next thing you know, they've gathered a new gathering of people. Tully Trevijan is one only a few years ago who, I think it was six months and he was ready for his next church. There have been many others like them, year after year after year, who sin grievously against their, their their spouses and against the Lord, they go through some machinations of repentance and want to come back into ministry. I'll put to you this morning, if you have in fact committed a scandalous sin in the public sphere of God's church, your gift has been taken away. I'm sorry. You have no more further place for public ministry in this way. 
You may serve the body of Christ. You may faithfully serve the Lord as a member of Christ's church if your repentance is genuine and true and sincere. You may carry out great things in the name of God. You cannot stand in the place of the pulpit and pastor God's people. Your position of shepherd has been broken by your breaking of the covenant with which God himself has called you into pastoral ministry. Recently, I was reading just the other day of a man who had a long-term ministry, and he had violated a young woman when she was 13 years old, all the way up until she was 17 or 18. I, I believe this was going on until she was into her 20s, now that I think about it, for a long period of time. He had raped her at a younger age, and, and he had convinced her that uh, he would tell and she would be I don't know, rejected by her community in some way. And so she was filled with guilt and she was racked with it. And so this pastor eventually, because others saw that there was this ongoing relationship, stood, others brought this pastor up on charges before his church body. And so he was magnanimous in his repentance. And he said, yes, now, now I, I don't think that there is true repentance when a man is caught. When he is caught by others and others reveal the truth about him. Nonetheless, he repented and he said, yes, I, I did do this. And I did have this consensual relationship. But thankfully, the young woman was in the congregation that day and she went to the pulpit, too. And she said, no, pastor, this was not consensual. This was wicked. And she revealed far more about the relationship and the church, which had only recently, because their pastor had repented of his sin, stood up and gave him an ovation, clapping for him. But after this young woman spoke, the church had a very different perspective. Be very, very careful about forgiving pastors caught in sexual sin. It's very easy to repent. Look for a long-term repentance. A demonstrated commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive them of their sin if in fact within the courts of Christ's church this repentance can be shown to be true. But don't allow them to stand in the pulpit ever again. There are scenarios in which the gifting of God may be taken away. If we are unfaithful in our tasks and we do not make use of the gifts which God gives to, to us as his servants, we may lose those abilities. If, in fact, we don't work hard, if I don't work hard at preaching and study and continue to try to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, then my preaching ability will never really change. It will, it will become static and it will become old. I'll say the same things, do the same things. Teaching will not be renewed and, and new and, and growing and deepening. And you will see in me that there's no growth. There's no maturation. Deepening of understanding and growth in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's the case, then it would be appropriate at some point for that to be acknowledged. And perhaps even for myself to be challenged about that very fact. And perhaps even before that day comes, the church should be asking, Pastor, are you growing? Are you reading good things? 
They should, in fact, encourage our pastors to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to make use of their gifts. Paul writes to Timothy and says, make use of the gift which you have been given. Be diligent in your exercise of it. All of us are to be diligent in our exercise of the gifts which God has given to us. And he has gifted all of us. As you think about the gifting that God has given to you, I knew a woman years ago who loved to say that she took she took a test, a spiritual test, not a biblical one, a spiritual test, and that her gift, as she went through this test and answered these very subjective questions, her gift was wisdom. My answer was, all right, well, make use of that gift. Use your gift for the Lord, humbly. The truth is that each of us has been given gifts by God, and they are manifold. We have First Peter chapter four verse ten. It says, "As each of us has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace." Ephesians four seven. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he had a, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts gifts to men. We are stewards. We have been given gifts. Some of us few, but many of us much. All that we are has come from him, and and we have nothing, and we are poor, worthless sinners, not realizing our poverty apart from him. But in him, we are rich. We are rich. So therefore, dear friends, we are to know, we are to know our master. <clears throat> we, are to, we are to know our master and his expectation of us. Jesus Christ is our master. He is our owner. He is our redeemer. And we should rejoice in that fact. He has bought us with a price we like to affirm that he is our Savior, but we're not so quick to recognize that what we have been redeemed from is our sin and our enslavement to sin, and that we might be enslaved to him. We are bondservants of the living God, Christians. We have been bought with a price. We are not our own. We are his servants, and so we are called. We are Christians. We have been born again in his house. We have been bought with his money. We are devoted to his praise. We have been employed in his work. He has created all things. All things come to be from him. And they come from him. The gifts, the spirit imparts are through him. The power is his. The grace is his. He owns it all. He has purchased us all by his blood. All things and all power have been given to him by the Father and especially his church. And therefore, We must live for him. That's fundamentally what this passage is about. We must work for him. We must serve the living God. We must live for him and serve him in our, in our, in, in, and see him as our source of blessing. This really is the place of joy for every believer to recognize that in serving Jesus, we are blessed. Some of us are searching for joy and peace and blessing and purpose in every other place. But we must find it in Him. We have been commanded to serve Him. We should acknowledge who we are. I am Christ's. I belong to Christ. You are Christ's. 
You belong to Christ. And what that means is, there is no insignificant service in the kingdom of God. Whatever you do in the name of Jesus Christ, whether that's faithfully being a godly mother in your home, and faithfully putting before your children a godly example of faith in Jesus Christ, you are serving more so the interests of the kingdom of God than I when I stand here in this pulpit on Sunday mornings. I'm convinced of that. When you wipe the snot off your child's nose and you clean their bottom, what you are doing is you are serving the Lord. When you put supper on the table and you sweat over that hot stove in the evening, as your children come and say for the thousandth time, when's dinner ready? You're serving the Lord. Fathers, when you break your back and you go day by day, day after day, and you come home weary, and you jump in and you help your wives and you care for your children and you play with them and you show them a happy demeanor, you are showing them Jesus Christ. You are showing them what it means to serve the Lord. When you come home at the end of a long day, whomever you are, whatever situation you come from, and instead of just merely going to sleep after a meal, you open your Bible. And no one sees you do it, and you read, and you pray, or you pick up the phone and you call a friend in the church and you check on them, or you go yet again to another Bible study, even though you're tired and you'd rather get in bed. And you sit there for a few minutes after Bible study and you're willing to talk to other people and simply ask them, how are you doing? How's work? How did that doctor's visit go? You're serving the Lord. You're serving Jesus. You're using your time and stewardship to the living Christ. And one day when you stand before the Lord, our hope is that we will hear, and our, the certainty of it is, that if we have faithfully served the Lord in this life, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's in that way that we serve the Lord. We are all using our gifts to serve the Lord. And we ought to use our gifts because we belong to Him and He is our Lord. Too many Christians are slothful and indolent, lazy, evil, malicious, wicked. Let's say you're a father and you have children at home and you, you, you close out your day because you've worked very hard and you refuse to participate in the work in the home and you go home in order to play video games and that's all you do and then you go to bed at night and you don't say goodnight to your wife and you don't love her and care for her and give yourself up for her. There's wickedness, indolence, and laziness, slothfulness. The Lord sees that too. Some of us do as little for God as we possibly can. Out of obligation and not a joyful expectation that we will stand before the Lord and we will see his glorious face. Carelessness in the work of the kingdom of God Carelessness in serving God is actually service to Satan. Do you know that? Carelessness in service to God is in fact service to Satan. Satan wants us to be indolent and slothful and lazy, thoughtless about our lives and what we will do in service to God. Some of us are serving our own interests and that we might be joyful and receive the blessing of peace and recreation and earthly benefits and bliss, 
We don't serve the Lord. We indulge our fleshly desires for rest. It's a good thing to rest. God gives us rest. It's a good thing to sleep. God gives us sleep. But when we are not when we are resting, when we should be working, that is in fact disobedience. When we indulge our flesh and get more than we should, well, because we are entitled to it. Well, that is disobedience as well. We should be careful stewards of our time and ability and gifts, and our joy will be that he will be pleased with us. Is your life pleasing to the Lord? Jesus did not redeem us so that we would be idle for him and establishing our own priorities and kingdom while neglecting his. He doesn't give the same expectation to all or, or gifting to all, but his expectation is that he is our Lord and he will receive from us a return on our labors and on his resources. I want you to take stock today. God has given us this day a day of service and of glorifying him. Will we use this day in some way for his glory? What are we doing with our lives? He is coming soon at a moment when we don't know. What will he say? What will he find me doing? Will he find me working and serving him? J.C. Ryle says in this passage, let us leave this parable with a solemn determination by God's grace never to be content with the profession of Christianity, with the profession of Christianity without practice. The profession of Christianity without practice. Let us not only talk about religion, but act. Let us not only feel the importance of saving faith in Christ, but let us do something too. The immediacy and importance of living today is found in the reality that how I live now is related to my eternity. How I live today, trusting in Him, uh, living for Him in my relationship, how I approach the fruits of the Spirit, whether I believe and obey the Word of God, whether I indulge my flesh in sin, etc., it will have an eternal impact upon my soul. It will bear eternal fruit for me or not. I'll tell you, dear friends, I believe that many of us, if not all of us, are. we believe in Christ's coming, that He is coming again. And He will reward our faithful service to Him because even now we are His stewards. He has gifted us with the lavish blessings and of grace through Christ, and we are His bondservants. As we live our life in faith in Him, one day we will stand before the Lord our God And we will hear as we behold the face of our Redeemer, well done, good and faithful servant. Let us ever keep that before us every day that we might serve the living God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we ask that you would help us to be faithful servants. We pray that you would help us to be faithful servants of the living God and of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to live in expectation of his coming again. Help us to live in expectation, not of what we expect, but rather of what he and his word has told us to, to, to look for. The signs of his coming toward the end of the age. When people would no longer have their ears filled with truth, but rather they want their ears tickled. And they will search out for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears with untruth. 
O Lord, are we not in such a day as this? Do we not see wickedness abound? Is there not a breaking down between people, groups, and and individuals, and families? Or our world is falling apart. Therefore, O God, we should live in the expectation of Christ and his return. Because Christ has promised to return. And he is showing us even in this passage this day that we are to be profitable servants and not wicked servants, but profitable servants who trust and have faith in Christ in our returning Savior, our returning King, and who live with the expectation, calculating all the while, every day, all the time, that Christ is coming. Christ is coming. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.